Hi, friends. So if you listen to the previous episodes about Elizabeth Packard, you'll know that life for people, and specifically for women in the 19th century, who had a hard time getting over a breakup, or who read novels from time to time, or who were a bit extra about their religious ideas, or who just didn't get along with their husbands, lived in a precarious world because at any moment, their male steward, so their father or their husband, could unilaterally decide to have them declared insane and committed to an asylum. Now, when I started falling down the rabbit hole of Victorian asylums, Elizabeth Packard was one of the first stops that I made, but she definitely and unfortunately wasn't the last. Once Elizabeth had triumphed, cape flapping in the wind, I might add, over the legal system first by rocking her trial and being declared sane, and then by working tirelessly to build a career, become financially independent, and then to get laws passed that protected the rights of asylum patients and of married women in the state of Illinois, things changed for the better. But unfortunately, this wasn't an all-encompassing solution. Women continued to be tucked away in asylums for being different or defiant, and this is where Nellie Bly comes in. So imagine, if you will, a woman with just as much grit as Elizabeth Packard, but with the advantage of being single, financially independent, and backed up by one of the foremost newspapers in the United States. And what you get is a woman who's about to upset the status quo in a massive way. I'm Kristen, and this is Broadly Underestimated, the podcast dedicated to understanding the underestimated aspects of our lives. Every object, institution, historical event, even the most mundane, has its own revolutionary story. And it's often the underestimated women behind those stories that have shaped life as we know it today. So picture this. At the northernmost tip of Roosevelt Island, just off of Manhattan, stands the seven-foot-tall bronze face of a woman. She has big round eyes and bangs that sweep across her forehead, and she's staring down the island in the direction of what is now a luxury apartment complex. But at the center of two wings of these extravagant apartments sits a gray stone structure in the shape of an octagon. Now, this structure is the only physical remnant of Blackwell's asylum, a place where those deemed insane in the 19th century simply disappeared into. Now, the face I described in the monument is Nellie Bly, and I think it's fitting that she is now eternally staring down the remains of the place that both abused her and made her one of the most infamous journalists who ever lived. So let's jump back to the year 1887. What is now called Roosevelt Island was then called Blackwell's Island for the family that once owned it. But in 1887, the island was a place of misery. On the southernmost end of the island was a hospital, but as we climb toward the north, its inhabitants become more and more anguished. After the hospital came a penitentiary, then the almshouses, and then the workhouse, and then at the northern end was the asylum. And it was on a September day in 1887 where we find Nellie Bly inside that asylum, shivering in her bed. She wore nothing but a short, damp slip, and her hair was soaking wet and drenching her pillow. She had one small wool blanket, which, when she pulled it over her shaking body, she found that when it was over her shoulders, it left her bare feet exposed to the cold. She'd just been subjected to a freezing bath. The nurses had stripped her naked, forced her into a tub of cold water, scrubbed her raw, then poured bucketfuls of icy water over her head. And her fellow inmates watched as she was humiliated and tortured. 
Afterward, her clothes weren't returned to her, but rather she was given an institutional slip to cover her bare body. The slip quickly dampened, and she was led to a room with nothing in it but a bed with an uneven mattress. And as she laid in that bed, fighting to warm herself under the small blanket, she heard footsteps coming and going down the corridor. The staff member paused at each door to lock more than 300 patients inside their rooms. And she wondered, what if there was a fire? The other women behind those locked doors were hopelessly trapped in hostile territory. Whether by a sick twist of fate or at the hands of a family member, these women had found themselves in the black hole of a Victorian asylum. But in contrast, Nellie Bly had engineered her own admittance into this asylum, and as she shivered miserably in her bed, she was simply biding her time to expose the injustice of a system that had swallowed women whole for centuries. Now, the first question we need to address is why Nellie Bly was at Blackwell's asylum. And the simple answer is that her editor at the World newspaper asked her to get herself admitted. For a while now, stories had been floating around New York about horrible abuses taking place at Blackwell's asylum. But, of course, this is an environment that few people had access to. And so John Cockrell of the World newspaper pitched the idea of getting herself committed to the asylum for 10 days, and she accepted immediately, and she would try to get herself committed to the asylum the very next day. So if we can just take a second for a tangent, I have to say that if I were in Nellie's shoes, there are a few specific things that would be on my mind as she sat in front of a mirror practicing whatever she considered manic behaviors for her stunt the next day. So first of all, as we discussed in the episodes about Elizabeth Packard, by being admitted to an asylum, Nellie would be giving up most, if not all, of her rights. And whether in policy or practice, it would take a man to get her out of there. Now, her editor had assured her that he would arrange for her release after 10 days. But I'm going to be honest, I'd be a tad bit concerned about this. She barely knew the guy. Would he honor his commitment? Or if securing her release became complicated for whatever reason, would he just give up and let her rot in the asylum? I'd also be worried about all kinds of bodily harm. Horror stories had been coming out of Blackwell's asylum for a while, and the terrible living conditions and the hostile staff would certainly give me pause. But luckily for us, and for many others, Nellie was hungry. She knew that this job well done would guarantee her a position at the newspaper and in the world of journalism. And so the next morning, she checked into a boarding house and scared the crap out of her fellow boarders. She started out acting paranoid, telling the woman who ran the boarding house that the other women there looked crazy and that she was afraid of murderers who were never caught by the police. Throughout the evening, Nellie repeated to the other women that she thought that everyone looked crazy. A really kind woman who Nellie shared a room with actually tried to get her to go to bed, but Nellie sat up all night just staring into space. Apparently, Nellie's act was working really well, because in the middle of the night, a boarder in another room woke up screaming from a nightmare. Apparently, she had dreamt that Nellie was coming at her with a knife. After everyone else had gone back to sleep, Nellie continued to sit up through the night. And by morning, the matron of the boarding house had called the police. Nellie was brought before a judge where she acted generally confused. When asked where she was from, she said that her home was in Cuba, and she fixated on locating her trunks. And after a doctor was called in to examine her eyes for drugs or insanity, she was pronounced insane and sent to Bellevue Hospital. And that, ladies and gentlemen, was all it took for Nellie to be stripped of her rights and put into a system that would be nearly impossible to get out of on her own. 
As I understand it, this stop off at Bellevue was meant to be a place where Nellie would be evaluated by another expert in order to decide the next steps to take care of her. But instead, Nellie's evaluation was really a foregone conclusion. When she was asked a string of preliminary questions by an attendant, which she refused to answer, the doctor in the room told the attendant that it didn't matter, that Nellie's paperwork had already been filled out, and that she was too insane to be able to answer the questions. And so she spent the night there after eating a freezing cold dinner and after meeting more than one woman who showed no signs of mental health issues and appeared despondent after not being listened to by the doctors when defending her sanity. Of course, Nellie sent many mixed signals to this first set of medical professionals that she encountered. She was observing them like a hawk, while at the same time playing the part of a woman who was deeply confused. Before the night was over, she was visited by more than one doctor who asked her when she had left Cuba, and Nellie responded by asking him whether he was familiar with her home. And after a short exchange, she was left to spend her first night in an institution for the insane. Now, Nellie hadn't slept in 24 hours, and unfortunately, she was about to have a rough night. And if I could have given her a heads up, I'd let her know that she just really wasn't going to be sleeping much for the next 10 days either, but I digress. Bellevue was chilly, and she laid in bed that night listening to the tortured yells of patients in the men's ward. So this would have been a pretty sobering sign of what was to come for her at Blackwell's asylum, but through what must have been extreme discomfort from the conditions and fear of what the next days would bring, Nellie persisted, and that stubborn persistence had always been an asset for her. In the story she'd written over her short but significant career in journalism, she'd covered society stories that were typical for female reporters at the time, but she'd also focused on hard-hitting topics like factory working conditions, the lack of social spaces for women, dating and sex among young working-class people, and divorce. Essentially, she was always challenging the status quo. Now, Nellie's life thus far had given her a perspective on and also a sensitivity to injustice that would carry through into her writing. Her growing up years had been marked first by stability and privilege as the daughter of an upwardly mobile father who accumulated family wealth through business and real estate and also through his position as associate justice of their county in Pennsylvania. The family moved to progressively larger and more lavish homes until Nellie's father passed away suddenly when she was just six years old. The fact that her father hadn't made a will left Nellie and her family in financial shambles, and the administrator of the estate mismanaged the sizable inheritance to the point that Nellie and her mother found themselves at times scrambling for an income. And to add insult to injury, Nellie's mother eventually married again, but to an incredibly abusive alcoholic who was physically violent and who drained the family resources. In a move that was scandalous for the Victorian period, Nellie's mother eventually divorced her third husband. She had been a widow when she married Nellie's father and was forced to start over again. At this point, Nellie had seen the financial challenges and dangers of being dependent on a man and the injustices that could come of it. She had seen her mother lose a beloved husband and simultaneously lose the rights to her home and all sense of financial stability, and then watched as her life was excruciatingly dismantled by a selfish and abusive third husband. It seems that Nellie was determined to distance herself as much as possible from these potential outcomes in her own life. She knew that few professions were open to women, but that the only way to become truly self-reliant would be to learn a skill. And so at the age of 15, she spoke to the administrator of the estate, a man named Colonel Samuel Jackson, and she requested that she be given the funds to attend a three-year program at a boarding school to become a teacher, which he agreed to. But at the end of her first term, Jackson informed Nellie that she didn't actually have the funds to finish the program and she had to drop out and return home. 
Now, Nellie was convinced that Jackson was mismanaging the family's money and would eventually tie him up in court about it, although it wouldn't ever lead to any actual reconciling of the family finances. Nellie would have to find another way to make a living. When she turned 16, she and her mother and some of her siblings moved to Allegheny, Pennsylvania. The larger city would provide more prospects for both Nellie, her mother, and her siblings to establish themselves. Her less educated older brothers found white-collar positions, while Nellie appears to have had trouble for the next few years to find good, consistent employment. She may have dabbled in tutoring, nannying, and housekeeping, and the family took on boarders to help defray living costs. These experiences were unfortunately common to so many women during Nellie's time, and with a personality like Nellie's, this would have lit a fire in her that was ready to jump at the right opportunity as soon as it came along. But before we get to that, let's jump forward again to 1887. Now, the next morning after Nellie's night at Bellevue began with the ominous stuff of horror films. Nellie and a group of fellow female patients were escorted to the wharf where they boarded a ferry. The boat was filthy, and the smell inside the closed cabin they sat in was sickening, and the women were guarded by two female attendants who spit tobacco juice on the floor. Nellie must have had an idea of where they were headed, but the other patients could have been in the dark. They boarded the ferry and headed out on the East River, which, for anyone who's not familiar with the area, is the strip of water that separates Manhattan from Long Island. Today, the Queensboro Bridge spans the river to connect the two stretches of land, but in September of 1887, the way across this point of the river was by ferry. If the women had been allowed on deck as the boat approached Blackwell's Island, they would have seen a large gray stone building sitting at the northern end. Two wings jutted out from the central point of the building, which was an octagon-shaped tower that housed the main entrance. The asylum was designed to house around 1,000 patients, but as Nellie would soon find, the building was crammed with more than 1,600 patients. The asylum sat on nicely kept grounds with large trees and green grass, but the September air coming off the cold Atlantic water had to have been chilly. When the ferry docked at the shore, Nellie was escorted to an ambulance where she asked a man where she was. Now, before I tell you his response, please insert that ominous person from every horror movie who says that one thing that tells you that the character should just run away as fast as they can. Now, imagine that person responding that Nellie was on Blackwell's Island, an insane place where you'll never get out of. Just let that sink in for a second. As Nellie and her fellow patients went through an initial assessment by the nurses, just like Elizabeth Packard, Nellie started to notice women around her being formally committed who showed no signs of mental health issues. Claims of sanity weren't listened to, and one poor woman who undoubtedly questioned the nurses as to why she was being committed was ignored because she didn't speak English. Imagine being labeled insane and committed to an asylum potentially for the rest of your life, on the grounds of a language barrier, simply because the staff didn't find it necessary to find someone who could translate. Nellie and her fellow new inmates were then ushered into a room filled with nothing but wooden benches. The walls were bare and the windows were barred. From the beginning, Nellie had her eyes peeled to take in everything she could about Blackwell's asylum. As soon as she entered the grounds, she noted the stench coming from the kitchen, juxtaposed with the militantly clean receiving area. From there, Nellie was given a meager meal of partially baked bread, a few prunes, and cold, unrecognizable tea. And then, to the bath. Now, as we know, this bath was a short but humiliating and dehumanizing experience. And this is where we find Nellie with her wet hair shivering in her bed. For Nellie and many others, the cold was one of the most punishing aspects of living at the asylum. 
The stone walls paired with crisp Atlantic temperatures and combined with the deprivation of appropriate clothing created a baseline of suffering that would inevitably lead to the deterioration of the human body and spirit. Women cried out in the night for warmth, but those cries were met with silence from the staff. In less than a day, Nellie had already seen enough of the asylum to convince her of the potential for all kinds of abuses, but the next days would reveal layer after layer of neglect, deprivation, and mistreatment. Now that Nellie had been admitted to the asylum, she dropped her invented identity of an insane woman. She had decided that from the moment her admittance into the asylum was secure, she would return to acting like herself to test whether the absence of what was generally considered insane behavior would even be noticed or matter to the medical staff there. And so she began her first full day at the asylum by getting up at 5.30 a.m. to get ready for an inedible breakfast. The food was consistently some combination of freezing cold, under or overcooked, or rotten, and sometimes all three. There were moments when Nellie would be dizzy from hunger, but couldn't make herself eat most of the food that was available, and she felt strongly that the lack of quality food contributed to both further deteriorating the mental and physical health of the women who legitimately had health issues, and in the creation of health issues for the women who had none to begin with when they entered the asylum. But perhaps the most torturous part of each day was when the women entered that sitting room with long, straight-backed wooden benches. The patients spent the majority of their days in this sitting room, and Nellie despised those wooden benches. And it's not like these women were given anything to do. They weren't allowed to sew, to read, write, or even talk. They had to sit there in silence for hours at a time. If they spoke or shifted positions or had bad posture, they were met with physical abuse from the nurses. So according to Nellie, if there was ever a recipe for making a human being an emotional and physical wreck within the span of a couple of months, it would be making them sit on these benches in silence as these women were forced to do. Sometimes a doctor would pass through the sitting room during these sessions and ask the women how they were doing. Nellie generally jumped at these opportunities to advocate for the women. When one woman had been crying through the night that she wanted to die to escape the endless cold, Nellie asked for extra layers of clothing, which the doctor ordered them to be given. But afterward, Nellie was told by another patient that asking for these things, especially if they'd already been refused by the nurses, would just bring on punishments later on. Now, as a young woman, Nellie really began to show herself as an advocate, and I think a lesson we can learn from her early life is not to lose hope, because something unexpected could be just around the corner. Because as we jump back to Nellie's early adulthood, when she was helping her mother with borders and struggling to find decent work, an unexpected ray of hope came in the form of a misogynistic newspaper article. Nellie had been a reader of a Pittsburgh newspaper called The Dispatch, and in The Dispatch there was a long-standing column called The Quiet Observer, which was written by a man named Erasmus Wilson, who wrote about his observations of timeless issues in theory from an uncommon vantage point. In reaction to the growing women's rights movement and the evolving ideas about where women belonged, Erasmus Wilson stated that a woman's place was in the home and made a fairly heinous statement about disposing of women. Understandably, the paper received a barrage of responses to this article, and one of these responses was from a young woman who called herself Lonely Orphan Girl, whose fresh, direct style caught the newspaper editor's eye. So the editor posted a notice in the paper asking for Lonely Orphan Girl to come forward. The next day, Nellie walked into the dispatch office, and the rest is history. She began honing her writing skills, and when she wasn't required to cover society topics, she tackled subjects that humanized the working classes and that approached topics like sex and divorce from a nuanced and empathetic perspective. 
Then, after covering attention-getting topics in Pittsburgh, Nellie spent five months in Mexico as a foreign correspondent, reporting on Mexican culture, society, and politics. A woman working as a foreign correspondent was such a novelty at that time that Nellie expected her stint abroad to catapult her career forward. But when she returned home from Mexico, Nellie found herself relegated to writing society articles once again. So she decided to go in search of greener pastures, and it was in March of 1887 that she made her break away to New York City, the news capital of the United States. The city buzzed with newsrooms that pumped out star reporters and groundbreaking stories to the masses. And Nellie was determined to become one of them. It's just that the newsrooms didn't exactly feel the same way. For months, she reached out to editors from the biggest newspapers in town, but no one was interested. By August, she was running out of money and she was going to have to do something drastic. So she walked into the offices of the biggest newspapers in the city, claiming to be working on a story for the dispatch about whether women were welcome in the field of journalism. And that is how she ended up in front of some of the most influential editors in the city. Their responses were mostly disappointing. There seemed to be a consensus that men were more useful reporters. After all, men could cover any type of story, while women should be shielded from the most gruesome, upsetting, or indelicate assignments. Now, after the story was actually published in the dispatch, the result was a showcase of a swath of influential men who were completely out of touch with the massive numbers of women who had left traditional life for jobs in cities. But most importantly, the article had gotten Nellie in front of these men, which she leveraged to go back to the world and pitch a story to the editor, John Cockrell. She wanted to travel to Europe by boat and then return in steerage class so that she could report from firsthand experience on what it was like to be an immigrant. Ultimately, Cockrell rejected the story Nellie pitched, but he suggested something even more interesting. How would she like to embed herself in an insane asylum? Now, let's jump forward to just after breakfast on Nellie's first day at Blackwell's asylum. Nellie and her fellow inmates were required to go for a walk. They were given straw hats to put on that apparently looked ridiculous and then got into two long lines, two by two. As Nellie walked, she noticed other lines of women walking the grounds. Some were visibly dirty and were tied together by cables fastened to belts on each of their waists. It was a deplorable view of torture and deprivation, and those walks showed an even more dire side of the asylum that Nellie was living in. Originally, Nellie had intended to get herself transferred to the wards with more depraved conditions, but after she saw the deterioration of the women who lived in those wards, she decided not to display any kind of violent tendencies so that she could stay put. Among a plethora of terrible conditions, the ways that the asylum staff abused the patients was one of the more shocking things going on at the asylum. The nursing staff lived in the asylum, but they, of course, had separate living quarters from the patients. Now, I can't say that all of the nursing staff were abusive to the patients, but it does seem like the majority may have been. Nellie witnessed the nurses taunting and harassing the patients for fun. There was one young patient in particular who was 18 years old, and once she stopped reacting to the nurses when they teased her about her age, they began hitting and slapping her. When she reached a level of panic, they then choked her to tranquilize her. She had hand marks around her neck for the rest of the day, and she was far from the only one who endured this type of treatment. The endless sitting, punctuated by horrible meals, cleaning, degrading walks, endless cold and violence from the nurses, were the picture of Nellie's life at the asylum. 
Nellie was disgusted by the abuses she witnessed as a human being, but also as a girl who watched her mother being abused by her third husband. Her abhorrence for taking advantage of the weak or disadvantaged shines through all of her work. Her life in general was a quest to ensure her own independence and to avoid being reliant on caretakers or men. And yet, she was completely dependent on a man, her editor, to get out of this place. Now, Nellie must have been counting down the days until she could get out of the asylum, but just before her editor was set to arrange her release, she was almost exposed as an interloper. Even though Nellie was relatively new to New York, she'd already integrated herself into the journalism community. So when a male journalist showed up at the asylum one day and recognized her, she begged him not to reveal who she was. And to his credit, he didn't. Not long after, a lawyer appeared at Blackwell's asylum. He informed Nellie that friends of hers were willing to care for her if she preferred to go with them rather than staying at the asylum. Obviously, Nellie jumped at this, and on top of that, she asked the lawyer to send her something to eat as soon as he arrived back in the city. Finally, freedom came for Nellie when she was on a daily walk with her fellow patients. She was called away from them, and at the last moment, she felt bad for leaving them there. She had always had the advantage of knowing, at least in theory, that she would be there for a limited time. But as she walked away from the women she'd gotten to know at Blackwell's asylum, she knew that many of them would never get out. On October 9, 1887, a story appeared in the world entitled Behind Asylum Bars. This was the first of a series of articles that Nellie would publish about her time at the asylum, and it hit the public and the government like a freight train. Just two weeks after the report was published, a grand jury investigation of Blackwell's asylum began. Similar to what happened when the investigation began at the Jacksonville Asylum after Elizabeth Packard exposed the abuses there, many of the conditions Nellie reported on at Blackwell's Asylum had mysteriously been improved by the time the investigators arrived. They served better food to the patients, sanitary conditions had been improved, some of the abusive staff members that Nellie had reported on had been removed, and the foreign patients who were admitted seemingly because they simply couldn't be understood had been transferred. But even with these improvements, the officials who performed the investigation still found the conditions bad enough to recommend significant changes. And as a result, $50,000 were appropriated specifically to the improvement of Blackwell's asylum, which would have been about $1.5 million today. And $850,000, which would be about $25 million today, were appropriated to the care of the insane in New York overall. And ultimately, by 1894, Blackwell's Asylum closed for good. Two months later, Nellie's book, Ten Days in a Madhouse, was published. Nellie had become a household name. Her name was published in the byline of virtually every other article she published in her lifetime, which apparently was almost unheard of for a newly hired journalist. She was not only a journalist, but a symbol of advocacy for those who were silenced. This stunt reporting, which today we would call investigative journalism, was in its infancy, and Nellie had made the concept well-known and in high demand. At just 23 years old, Nellie Bly had established herself as a social justice advocate and as a major player in the field of journalism. Just like Elizabeth Packard, the fact that she had personally experienced the horrors of the Victorian asylum system and then found a way to share her story on a national platform further evolved the approach to mental health in the United States. As we know, change in this area has been incremental and at times glacial. And we still have so much more to improve, but significant public consciousness of the injustices surrounding mental health can be traced back to Nellie's stubborn persistence, advocacy, and her powerful voice. 
Now, if we zoom back out of the octagon on Roosevelt Island to the bronze face of Nellie Bly, we would see a label beneath her face that says, The Girl Puzzle. The Girl Puzzle was the name of Nellie's first published headline, and the monument includes the faces of many women who have faced adversity and come out stronger on the other side. It gives visibility to Asian, Black, young, old, immigrant, and queer women. Their bronze faces are assembled in sections that can appear both separate and whole from different vantage points. And this encapsulates both the essence of Nellie Bly and what she stood for and these systems that controlled both the mental health and behavior of women. Outside of a certain range of behaviors, women were considered broken and then were discarded into asylums. But the fact of the matter is that through adversity, whether it be falling on hard times as Nellie did during her younger years, suffering from mental health challenges, or being imprisoned by an unjust system that policed your social behaviors, on the other side of it, we can all come out fighting and stronger. Nellie spent the rest of her life advocating for the rights and dignity of others, and showing the world that women belonged in all the spaces that they'd been told they didn't fit in. But most importantly to our story here, in the battle that's still being fought today against the weaponization of women's emotional expression and mental health, Nellie moved the needle forward to show that we can't be passive in our approach to stereotypes or for caring for those who are working through mental health struggles. It's these types of records that allow us to see both how far we've come and to remind us, like Nellie Bly, to challenge the status quo. And now, it's time for a segment I call The Stacks. Doing research is one of my favorite things to do. The more you learn, the more the puzzle pieces of the world start to come together. So I want to take you into the stacks of the library with me to share favorites of the books, documentaries, movies, interviews that I think you would enjoy if you want to learn more about this topic. 10 Days in a Madhouse is Nellie Bly's full account of her experience at Blackwell's Asylum. I loved reading this book because Nellie's voice felt so modern to me in many ways, and her portrayal of her time at the asylum is a harrowing one that you won't easily forget. If you've been enjoying Broadly Underestimated, please consider leaving a review because reviews help other people to find the show. And if you want to support Broadly Underestimated, feel free to do so through Buy Me a Coffee. All donations go directly toward research materials and keeping the podcast running. You can find a link to the Broadly Underestimated Buy Me a Coffee page in the show notes or at womanintime.com. And I also wanted to give a shout out to the fabulous Hashtag History podcast for supporting the show through Buy Me a Coffee. Rachel and Leah dive into history's controversies, conspiracies, and corruption in a way that is both hilarious and enlightening. They make history feel like a movie. And that is all for today. So thanks so much for listening. And we'll see you next time on Broadly Underestimated.